This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting-edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Hello, I'm Dr. Caleb Frank. Welcome back to Docera Digest. This is our sixth and final episode on epigenetics, which is a big and complex topic. Throughout the series, we have shared a lot of information and mentioned the names of many genes and proteins, which to you probably seemed like a bunch of random letters and numbers thrown together, and to us seemed like tongue twisters. Despite that, we hope we were able to present the information in a way that was both sensible and beneficial to you. If you're just joining us on this series, then make sure to go back and check out our other episodes as well. Today, we're going to be focusing on the brain, neurotransmitters, neuroplasticity, and more. I'm going to go ahead and kick things off by talking about two specific neurotransmitters called dopamine and serotonin. So these are transmitters, which means they carry messages back and forth throughout the nervous system as well as to the body. They are also neuromodulators, which means they are able to communicate with neurons far beyond the site where they are released, and the signals typically last longer than other neurotransmitters. <clears throat> You've probably heard of dopamine and serotonin referred to alongside oxytocin and endorphins as our happy hormones because of their positive effects on regulating mood and emotions. Both of them influence our feeling of pleasure, happiness, or well-being, but dopamine tends to generate a more temporary effect, whereas serotonin has a longer-lasting effect on mood. There's also plenty of research showing a link between imbalances in these neurotransmitters and depression, and uh, there has been benefits in overcoming uh, depression through restoring those balances. Although the focus is typically more on serotonin, there are also some links to dopamine as well. These neurotransmitters also play a part in the sleep-wake cycle, appetite and hunger control, learning and memory, as well as many other functions in the body. Dopamine is considered to be the primary motivation and reward regulator in the brain. A dopamine release, also known as a dopamine rush, can occur during or as a result of pleasurable or rewarding experiences. Experiences like sex, comfort foods, shopping, exercise, finishing a to-do list, listening to music you enjoy, and so much more. Dopamine can also cause reinforcement for pursuing that good feeling, which can lead to healthy habits if used properly, but can also lead to addictive behaviors, especially dealing with overeating, alcohol, and drugs. I think there are several other psychological factors that also play into this, but dopamine is definitely involved in the process. So dopamine is made in the brain by converting the amino acid tyrosine into L-DOPA, which is then converted into dopamine. So tyrosine can be found in many foods, such as chicken and poultry, uh, dairies foods, such as milk, cheese, and yogurt, avocados, bananas, pumpkin seeds, sesame seeds, and soy. 
Meditation has also been shown to trigger dopamine release. Serotonin is also known as 5-hydroxytryptamine, or 5-HT. Interestingly, only about 10% of serotonin is produced in the brain, with the other 90% being produced and stored in chromaffin cells in the gut. I think this is one of the big reasons why we see so many mood changes with gut disorders and parasite infections. So this is made with the amino acid tryptophan, which most of us will get plenty of on Thanksgiving as we feast on turkey. You can also find it in chicken, whole milk, canned tuna, cheese, oats, and nuts and seeds. So serotonin can also be stimulated by regular exercise and body movement, exposure to bright light, and an anti-inflammatory diet. So a few genetic factors that are associated with these transmitters or neurotransmitters are the COMT gene, which metabolizes dopamine and blocks serotonin receptors, the MAOA and MAOB genes, which deactivate serotonin and dopamine. We've also seen that issues with these genes can lead to uh, increased aggressive behaviors. There's also the SLC6A3 and 6A4 genes, which uh, create the dopamine and serotonin transporter proteins, which allow them to pass through neuron membranes. So there's a lot more we could go into, but basically if you're seeing a lot of mood or issue, mood issues or disorders pop up in your family, it may be beneficial to look at dietary and exercise habits, as well as getting some DNA analysis done to identify possible susceptibilities to these issues. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and turn over to Dr. Craig to talk about neuroplasticity. Thanks, Dr. Caleb. So what is neuroplasticity? Neuroplasticity is really simply put the ability for the brain to rewire itself. I like to use the analogy or think of the analogy, if you remember the old telephone operators that had their little cords and they'd constantly be plugging them into different holes. Well, your brain is constantly detaching and reattaching neurologic connections. If it needs it, it continues the connection and makes it even stronger. If it doesn't, it prunes it away. So why is this important? <laughs> Tell us. Here's we're, why, all, we're dying to know. I know. Here's why it's important. And I was waiting to use my example. Do you remember when we did our first video on neuroplasticity? Do I? <laughs> Do I? No, because well, it's been it pruned away. Long, it was a very long day. <laughs> it was because one of us, and it wasn't you, was having great difficulty recording the video because the moment that camera came on, I froze. I didn't, it's like I couldn't remember anything that I said. It's my brain shut down. So, what I have done over time is actually changed the way I think. And now hopefully we're going to get this done in one take. <laughs> so, but that's evidence of how I interact with an environment and experience differently. My brain has literally rewired itself and now nerves that were connected before are not connected and new nerve connections have been made. So what does this have to do with genetics? Well, one thing that's important is you have a couple of genes that can impact our body's ability to do that. One is what's called the CREB1, and the other is GPM6A, which affects the body's ability to reconnect or disconnect. So imagine if you could not disconnect or you could not make new connections. You're literally stuck in a moment in time, and you cannot change. Because I heard the analogy put this way, your brain is really a biologic picture of everything that you've experienced. So if we can't change that, we don't change over time, we get stuck. So this becomes really important. 
The other thing that I get to talk about real quick is some of the neurologic conditions. I'm not going to go in depth into all of them. I'm going to just kind of quickly list some of the genes that can affect it. And what I want to do is encourage you, the listeners, if you're dealing with this or anybody you know is dealing with this, do some research into these specific genes. And even more than that, what I encourage you to do is come and get checked. Let us do some testing on you to see if it's a genetic issue or if it's some other type of issue like we've talked about, parasites or microbes or some metabolic issue. So real quickly, here's some of the ones you want to be aware of. When it comes to schizophrenia, DTNBP1, DISC1, and NRG1 all can impact schizophrenia. ERBB4 can affect ALS and dementia. There are a ton of them in autism. I'm not going to list them all off, but PLEKHA8, PRR25, and many more affect autism. Maybe I had a moment of autism there. Then, then we get into DRD4, DRD5, and COMT, which has been mentioned affects not only ADD, but the COMT can also affect Parkinson's, which is the last one I'm going to mention uh, because we're getting ready to do a whole lot of work with that as well. We have the LRRK2, PARK7, PINK1, PRKN, and SC, SNCA that all can impact that as well. As I said, what's really important is there's a whole lot of things that can impact your brain health, its ability to not only heal and repair itself, but even function. Sometimes it's a genetic issue that predisposes us to it. Sometimes it's something else. Sometimes it's a combination of both. And that's why I want to encourage you all, come let us help you figure that out. So with that in mind, I want to pass it on to Dr. Kais and he can talk about another aspect of brain health. So it's interesting here as we are discussing all this here and I look around the room and we have doctors that, I mean, we have generations and generations of doctors here from different aspects and eras. And I realize that I'm the one in the middle and I guess I'm the last one or the first one that didn't grow up with operators plugging stuff into holes. I guess you and Ben remember that pretty well, but <laughs> I never had to experience well. that. <laughs> so that being said, I'm going to talk about tetrabiopterin and half the stuff I have here to talk about Dr. Frank already went over it. So I'm going to just kind of give you some precursors to how those things came about that he's talking about. So tetrabiopterin has many or multiple roles in human biochemistry. The major one is to convert amino acids such as phenylalanine, tyrosine, and tryptophan into the precursors of the dopamine and serotonin. These are major monamine neurotransmitters, which a lot of the information I have on that I'm going to skip over because Dr. Frank just went over it very well. So it works as a cofactor being required for an enzyme's activity as a catalyst, mainly through the aspect of hydroxylases. So let me just briefly go over this here. Tetrabiopterin is what takes tryptophan, which comes from the turkey, and turns it into 5-HTP. 5-HT becomes serotonin. We feel happy. And then it turns into melatonin, and we need that nap in the middle of the football game on Thanksgiving. So tetrabiopterin is also a cofactor for phenylalanine hydroxylase, which catalyzes the conversion of L-phenylalanine into L-tyrosine. Therefore, a deficiency in tetrabiopterin can cause a toxic buildup of L-phenylalanine, which can also uh, create a lot of neurological issues such as phenylketonuria. Tetrabiopterin is also a cofactor for tyrosine hydroxylase, catalyzes the conversion of uh, L-tyrosine into L-dopa. And that becomes dopamine, which as he talked about in great depth, dopamine is kind of the reward for getting things done. It's our focus. It's our ability to have drive and motivation, memory, clarity, to be able to accomplish things. I always 
talked to my patients about it. I said, we have serotonin and dopamine. These are kind of the rock stars. Serotonin is going to make you happy and feel good. Dopamine is going to make you get things done. And so if you have one person who's really high in serotonin, really low in dopamine, they're going to sit on the couch and waste their life away and just be happy as can be. Then you got the other one who's going to be low in serotonin and high in dopamine, and they're going to be driven to get things done, and they'll never be happy, even when they do a good job and get it accomplished. And they're really a pain in the butt to work with because <laughs> they'll railroad people. So having that perfect balance between there allows us to live a happy life and to get things done and to really go after and accomplish things. So we get that sense of reward and make the world a better place for everyone around us. So last one is uh, tetrabiopterin is a cofactor for nitric oxide synthase. So since Dr. Kate Frank stepped on my toes, I'm going to step on Dr. Luke's toes just a little bit here and set him up, tee him off, because tetrabiopterin is needed for NOS, our nitric oxide synthase. So it converts guanidino nitrogen of L-arginine to nitric oxide, which is known as the miracle molecule. And I don't know if you're going to go into all that, but if you're not, I'm going to go ahead and distill everything from you. All your thunder is going right now. I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> <laughs> so many issues with uh, issues with nitric oxide and other things that BH4, there are things that go back to all kinds of things such as diabetes, autism, cardiovascular risk, uh, neuroprotection and prenatal hypoxia, program cell death, all these things have been related back to dysfunctions with tetrabiopterin. So with that being said, and taking my foot off of his toes, I'm going to let Dr. Luke take over. <laughs> Thank you. So we're talking about nitric oxide and circulation and how it pertains to brain health. There's really 10 genes that we're looking at specifically in our genome report and in our test kits that are specifically related to nitric oxide and circulation. Rather than listing out all that fun alphabet soup for you, I'd rather focus on the specific of what's being evaluated and why. So nitric oxide is of critical importance because it allows things to move in and out of a closed system, which is our vasculature or our blood flow or circulation. Nitric oxide also vasodilates blood vessels, which means to open them up, which helps regulate blood flow and blood pressure. Nitric oxide is found by virtually every cell in the body, and it plays an important role in controlling the normal function of cells, as well as regulating larger processes such as the nervous system, neurotransmitters, that's been discussed quite well, uh, immune system, and the respiratory system. So how all this pertains in this episode of Brain Health and Neuroplasticity, well, let me just keep it simple and give you a really uh, easy uh, take home, and I think relatable for a lot of people. Uh, quick story, Dr. Kyson and I were at a conference last weekend in Kansas City, and in one of the lectures, uh, this particular speaker uh, function specialized in functional neurology. And I don't think Dr. Kyson was in with me on that one, but she said it best to sum up my segment here. Cold hands and cold feet equals cold brain. So often we see paired together as cold extremities and brain fog or decreased cognitive function. Nothing pathologically wrong necessarily when we see people, but something just isn't quite right. It takes a long time to think and answer questions, and maybe we're not as sharp as we once were, things like that. So if that's happening and there are SNPs or variants present there, then we know we ought to look into supporting nitric oxide synthesis, blood flow, and brain health from a nutritional and lifestyle perspective unique to the patient. So with that, I'm going to kick it over to Dr. Ben, who will close out this series. Dr. B. Thanks, Dr. Luke. This final topic of this series, I'm briefly going to discuss what's called generational DNA probability. What is that all about? Well, a common question we often hear is, what is the chance of someone getting something that their parents or grandparents had versus passing that of something else onto their children? Another question might be is, how did someone in a family get a disease or condition that no one in their family that they know of has ever had? 
generally this is discussed about things like breast cancer, colon cancer, even lung cancer, specifically in someone who's never smoked. So first, let me address the genetic issue. Most of us know that we get 50% of our DNA from our biological mother and 50% of our DNA from our biological father. However, in that 50%, we do not inherit all the main aspects of that parent's ancestral DNA. It's a random percentage that is received, even though the randomness is in direct contrast to the randomness of other parental DNA strengths and weaknesses. What does that mean? This means that multiple children can receive different random aspects of the same 50% of the ancestral DNA from each parent and from their family tree. Sometimes one child will inherit some or even all of a certain segment of DNA from an ancestor, think like grandparents, great-grandparents, etc. In other cases, a child may not inherit any of it. Research has now figured out that every person alive is carrying some aspect of at least seven generations of DNA from their family tree, which means that they are carrying the DNA of at least 128 people. Wow. Another key to consider is the age of the parents at the time of that conception. Since we know that we do not have a completed DNA structure until we reach the average age of 27 to 28 years of age, if the parents were younger than that at the time of conception, then they did not even have all of their completed DNA from which that random 50% came from. Then that even gets more complicated if this happens in multiple generations. Think about how many people got married in their teenage years back in whatever to even the very early 20s and had children in those ages. And then if the parents were past the age of 32 to 33 years of age, then DNA degradation, adaption, and morphology has already began to occur, and the child may end up with some random aspects of altered DNA. Now think about this for many multiple generations, and you can begin to see why there are so many variables in families, especially those with many children. And ancestral DNA may not even be detectable at five or six generations because it was lost in those generations where conception occurred prior to DNA completion. While another ancestor's DNA is still present and is even detectable in amounts at eight, nine, or even 10 generations if conception occurred from 26 to 32 years of age. And this doesn't even take into account your blood-related aunts and uncles and cousins and their random DNA variations at, from their parents' age of conception. Then consider the different ethnicities that seem to rise and fall in different generations. And looking at some pretty unexpected aspects of this, a person can carry direct male or female lines of mitochondrial DNA of about half of the DNA from 10 generations and even up to 1% of that DNA 20 generations later. Wow. Which means that 10 generations from now, your offsprings will still be carrying about 50% of your DNA. So here's my key takeaway. You need to begin now with your children to help bolster their DNA prior to them conceiving, both male and female. Remember, it takes both. <laughs> so in conclusion this series, I want to kind of talk about this. At the beginning of this series, we introduce you to the extraordinary topic of epigenetics, as well as the key factors that are involved in how your specific genes or genomes can change and adapt to your world. We discuss that this will open all kinds of doors for personalized healthcare. 
And with it, we're now able to customize healthcare to each individual and make it unique for every individual person. Meaning that we do no longer have to treat health conditions or diseases the same way for everyone. We are now able to look at your unique genome and treat you for your specific needs. We have the capability of identifying which of the genes are turned on or off in either a good or bad way and create very unique and special treatment protocols just for you. Think about that. If you've had your DNA tested and we've identified some unique SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, that are specific to you, not your brother, not your sister, not anybody else, we can customize a treatment plan or protocol just for you. Now, hopefully all this uh, didn't spin your head too much. We want to take, we want to thank you for taking your time to watch and listen to the series. And I want you to know that we know that your time is very precious and valuable to you, just as it is for us in producing this. So we hope the time that we spent is as valuable to you as it was for us presenting it. Well, guys, God bless, and please do all that you can do to stay healthy, and we look forward to a future series down the road. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.